Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books and World Affairs podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Jeffrey Gordon, and today I'm talking to Dr. Natalie Cook. Um, How do authoritarian political leaders use the built environment to shape understandings of national identity and history? How do major urban development projects affect the political fortunes of authoritarian governments? And why do so many people routinely experience social control and the threat of violence in nominally democratic regimes? These are some of the questions that the contributors to the new edited volume, Spatializing Authoritarianism, out earlier this year from Syracuse University Press, hope to answer. My guest today, the volumes editor, Natalie Cook, will discuss what geographers can contribute to the study of authoritarianism. Natalie is a professor of geography at Syracuse University. Her previous works include a solo authored book, The Geopolitics of Spectacle, Space, Synecdoche, and the New Capitals of Asia from Cornell University Press in 2018, and articles on a range of topics related to nationalism and nation building, the politics of natural resources, urban politics, and the geopolitics of Central Asia and the Middle East. How are you today, Natalie? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, so uh, it, at the New Books Network, we always like to open with a question about um, how what the origins of, of the book is and what the origins of this uh, project are. How did this project come about and how does it relate to your previous research on spectacular cities in Central Asia and the Middle East? Yeah, authoritarianism has been uh, really a a defining theme in my entire academic career, I suppose. Uh, When I I first started doing research as an undergraduate student in Kazakhstan, uh, I was very aware that I was entering a country that was was classified as authoritarian. Um, And I I guess I wasn't overly interested in in theorizing the politics of it when I was a student. Then I was really just focused on uh, focused on political ecology and environmental issues in Kazakhstan. Uh, but very quickly, I I realized that every everywhere around me uh, was was 
impossible to understand if you didn't understand the political uh, organization of the country. And so that sort of led me down this longer trajectory of, of studying uh, authoritarian power and trying to trying to define what actually set uh, Kazakhstan apart from my experience of growing up in the United States. And I then went on to do my my doctoral research in geography, uh, and I I noticed this trend that <laughs> I, I was always reading the work of political scientists, and as I like to sort of joke with my political science colleagues today, I like the questions that they ask, just not the way they always answer them. And so I can relate I, to that. <laughs> okay, exactly. So, so the, at least in in the United States, the the dominant approach tends to be more quantitative. Uh, and th so I was I was taking political science classes. I'm very interested in the questions about authoritarianism that that political science was was addressing, but I just felt more inclined toward qualitative research as the field of in, in the field of geography and, and human geography we are yeah we're we're very preoccupied with different scales of politics and we're not as inclined to quantify the world uh, so this this it was always something that, that bugged me that geographers weren't talking about authoritarianism in a critical way uh, and using the tools that we have in a, in our discipline of really yeah fantastic ethnographic research and and all sorts of mixed methods um so I, yeah, I, I had noticed this trend, but you know, when you're a graduate student, you don't feel safe enough, maybe, in, in some way, to to approach a particular topic uh, as as big as that uh, in a discipline where, yeah, it's just not really covered. And I noticed a lot of discomfort with the topic of authoritarianism within the geography community. Um, people were very willing to talk about democracy and democracy promotion, uh, but authoritarian just felt uncomfortable for a lot of geographers. So I've always sort of felt that that, that is a, a place where we as geographers could, could start to bridge our um, discussions with political science and, and take a different methodological approach uh, and answer those questions about authoritarianism differently. Uh, so this is a, a very long-winded way of saying, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's been a project of mine and, and in the back of my head for, for many years. So uh, I've, I've just really sort of taken taken the opportunity to to really just put this out there and, and make a call in the book I think the book is more than anything just a call for uh, other scholars to think uh, more geographically and spatially about authoritarianism uh, that uh, answer segues really nicely into uh, my first set of questions that are kind of about um, how uh, you and the authors in your book uh conceptualize authoritarianism and approach setting authoritarianism. Um, I am a political scientist. Uh, I was uh, trained in, um, uh, I tried very hard to become a good quantitative social scientist, although now I'm, uh, I identify much more as a comparative host, uh, historical uh, social scientist. Um, but uh, I, I, I think that my first question is about how 
um, in political science and in everyday political discourse, we tend to talk about authoritarianism as a characteristic of territorial nation states. Um, the Freedom House map on page two of the book demonstrates this space-based uh, or state-based spatial imaginary. Different countries are classified as free, partly free, or not free, and in each country is shaded in uh, whichever uh, color corresponds to one of those categories. Um, but as you mentioned, uh, geographers are used to thinking about, um, uh, um, politics is taking place at a variety of different scales, both above and below the nation state level, um, and thinking about how these scales interrelate with each other rather than thinking of them as uh, separate spheres or, or as separate in some sort of ontological foundational way. Um, how can scholars of authoritarianism break out of the territorial trap and what are the benefits of doing so? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the the territorial trap is, well, the, the, that exact terminology comes from the scholar uh, John Agnew, who was a professor, actually, that held the, the professorship that, that I have in Syracuse uh, for, for 20 years uh, in political geography. And John Agnew's argument here, and his, actually, he's, he's critiquing IR scholars more than anything, uh, but geographers, political geographers have always sort of referenced this text as, yeah, a a problem of just thinking uh, about political organization of space that is still too confined to the state borders. At some point in in my teaching, I I realized that that for many geographers, they just felt like the the article we already knew everything that was in the article. Uh, But but it's it it's actually something that is still incredibly relevant uh, that these these ways of classifying um, global politics around the borders of a state are they're, they're commonplace in, in everyday sort of imagination of, of the globe but they're also just in in all these institutional frameworks like you mentioned um, freedom house where if you look at the map of, of any of these sort of freedom house maps it's just one country gets classified as as one color scheme, or it's it's you know everything is sort of subsumed within that. Uh, so this this is something that requires. I, I think it doesn't require actually that much of a of an intellectual move to just look at that and realize <laughs> that there's diversity within a country. And so it's it's and then this is where again I think some some of the geographers today say yeah the the territorial trap critique is really simple and it frankly is. Uh, but for some reason we just methodologically keep lapsing back into that statist way of looking at at global affairs. Right. Sometimes this is just, uh, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was just going to jump in and say that um, I think political science is still, especially comparative politics, uh, is still really caught in this territorial trap because even though there is a literature in political science on so called subnational authoritarianism, that is, which focuses on um, authoritarian enclaves in otherwise democratic states where, um, for example, in, in federal states where governors or, or 
um, you know, there are these traditions of maybe, for example, segregation in the U.S. South is is thought of as this, or or uh, some of the governors in places like Argentina and Mexico can run their states as private fiefdoms with their own control over the police that um, um, are are embedded in these otherwise nominally democratic states. But this is thought of as something that is an exceptional characteristic that is um, a, a product of the weakness of the central state as compared to this, you know, theoretical benchmark of the Weberian uh, uh, nation state um, rather than as something that uh, is actually quite commonplace and actually um, uh, quite, uh, quite normal in, in, in all sorts of different polities where local actors uh, can get an, it can um, exercise autonomy and govern in, in very autocratic ways. Um, you're right. Yeah. You're right. And I, and I think again, what, what's, what's kind of puzzling about this is that what, as you just described it, a lay person can understand that very quickly. My students understand that very quickly and they can see through the, the sort of, yeah, the, the, the artificial nature of imagining that you could classify an entire country as uh, democratic or authoritarian, as if there aren't those sort of complicated spaces of, of blurriness in the middle. I think then then the challenge uh, is is really one again of methodology, because to to me, well, okay, I, I mean, I, I've had these debates <laughs> with with political scientists before. Well, if you create a regression model and each country is is a variable. Well, I mean, they just think about the, the differences between Russia and Singapore. Those are two vastly, vastly different kind of territories. But if they become then equivalent for the model purpose, uh, yeah, I can understand that the model demands this sort of equivalence and that there's reasons for that. But just because it, it fits into our methodologies doesn't mean that it's yeah, the, the most suitable way to, to think about uh, authoritarianism and, and how space and politics relate. Right. And uh, like you just hit on, um, uh, the comparative method really naturalizes the unit of analysis. It takes, uh, as you said, the fundamental differences in territories between a place like Singapore, Singapore and Russia, and it renders that invisible by just uh, abstracting from these uh, um, territorial differences and and uh, saying that these are equivalent units of world politics. Um, I think that that uh, uh, unit of analysis problem is really pernicious uh, um, and really widespread in comparative politics because it it makes the nation makes the um, artificiality of the nation state uh, really difficult to see. Um, as well. Well, and it, it's it's also, I mean, frankly, it's it's also a challenge for for those of us who do more qualitative research because here here again, I I feel like you know with my research in in a place like Kazakhstan, I want to be able to make a general statement about political situation there. And yes, there are there are boundaries to where the Kazakhstani government's authority extends. Um, 
And yes, that authority may reach over borders in particular ways, but by and large, there is a kind of um, there is a kind of bordering of state power. Um, and and there, I think then, if if we want to be critical about that, and we want to challenge the territorial trap and that sort of statist thinking. Uh, we just have to. I, I think it's just most important to acknowledge that you are working with uh, with with the state as a social construct, and that you just put that up front. Um, that that to me is the most important way to get beyond it, because once you put it up front and you you acknowledge that there is an artificiality to this, then then yeah, you can you you can sort of work within that, and you can say, well, given that, then what can I say about how power works in Kazakhstan or the other countries where I work now in the Arabian Peninsula? Um, those those are much smaller territories, and politics looks very differently. Uh, but but I can make some some general statements about that. Uh, am I reproducing the the, the territorial? state and the state system yeah but i do that every day right i have a pass i have a passport i pay my taxes i you know i i i take funding from from the government um so there there are ways that that we are nevertheless kind of bound by and and are individually reproducing the state system um unwillingly and willingly Right. The, the state is a, a real abstraction, uh, as, as Marxists might say, um, mm. uh, something that is uh, an idea, a social construct, but nonetheless, one that we are uh, compelled to behave as if it is real, because if we don't, then we're going to wind up in jail or something <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah. in our everyday yeah. lives. Um, uh, and Political scientists regularly debate what the essential characteristics of democratic political regimes are and how to measure these characteristics. Uh, yet, as you note in the introduction, uh, conceptual elusiveness is itself essential to the relations of power that are produced in how authoritarianism is imagined, narrated, mapped, and acted upon across the world. Um, what are the advantages of adopting an anti-essentialist practice-oriented approach to setting authoritarianism as opposed to um, thinking of uh, regimes as being either authoritarian or democratic at the state level? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there, there's been a lot of, I'll, I'll start maybe less less on the side of what the characteristics of the, the sort of uh, democratic political system would be but more with with the the framings of authoritarian regimes because honestly if you if you look at the diversity of terms uh you 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 see that any anything and everything kind of flies under the the broad rubric of authoritarian fascist tyrannical uh dictatorial whatever it might be there's this just a a huge diversity of of terms so for me and i and i still sort of feel like some some colleagues might uh be annoyed by this but i honestly don't think it's worth debating these labels in any way shape or form uh that that rather it's this sort of broader conceptual nodes of authoritarian or non-democratic on one end of the spectrum and the the other end of the spectrum is 
democratic and liberal and, and all of those sorts of associations that, that we have with uh, the, the other end of the spectrum. So if, if we stop fixating on exactly what those characteristics are and we look at the discourse surrounding those terms of who is deciding what we are calling democratic? This becomes a self-reflective process, right? Who defines that? Who defines what we call authoritarian? So I think the first thing that if you if you sort of move against this uh, the, this effort to find the right <laughs> essential definition of democracy or authoritarianism, if you move against that, you're already starting to reflect on your own practice as somebody who is speaking from the, the role of an expert or, or uh, an intellectual or wh however you position yourself within this conversation, uh, you're, you're forced to reflect on your own role in defining that conversation. Uh, and and it's, it's from this point of reflexivity that, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a feminist scholar through and through, that you have to start there uh, and, and see how you are engaging in these politics uh, and these discourses of power. And that de definition of authoritarian versus uh, democratic, that is a discourse of power. Uh, so, so for me, that, that point is, is really important to start with, uh, especially because then, uh, then, then, you, then you start to acknowledge the way that the authoritarian label has been used as, as a kind of epithet. Um, maybe more so fascist uh, would, would be the better, the better example of that, especially after World War II, um, that if, if we are just using this uh, and participating in the moral hierarchies of using certain terms versus others, uh, this, this can quickly move away from the intellectual questions that I personally am really interested in. I want to understand a, a bigger issue about authoritarianism. For me, that's always been why are authoritarian regimes popular? Um, those sorts of questions can get lost if you immediately enter into the conversations on these normative terms. And by those normative terms, I mean, again, just that sort of mapping of authoritarian others and democratic, um, well, us being the, the Democrats usually in, in that narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've uh, thought a lot about how... Um about the politics of democracy indicators and about how, um, you know, political scientists kind of search for the elusive, what is the most value-free quote unquote objective way to measure democracy. And that's kind of a silly argument to have because democracy is inevitably going to be a content, uh, uh, uh a concept that has normative baggage to it and whatever decision you make about what the core characteristics of democracy are, you're making a decision that's going to shape the research agenda in ways that render some questions out of bounds or render some kinds of things invisible. And for a long time, uh, the character, the frankly authoritarian characteristics of the U S state uh, have been invisible to political scientists because we kind of say, oh, well, you know, um, um, if we started 
treating police violence as for example as something that's uh detrimental to democratic political regimes well every country has uh police violence every country being the u.s it must be normal if it happens here um uh therefore we can't discriminate between regimes and make uh, distinctions between regimes if we if we start including that in the core characteristics of our concepts and i think that one of the benefits of this practice oriented approach is that we're less concerned with working at the macro level and trying to characterize entire countries by being one country or, or one regime type or another and instead you can get into this complexity of how do countries that have these many liberal institutions also have very many authoritarian practices at the same time and start to really delve in, appreciate this complexity and stop using and get away from treating uh, democracy as some kind of uh, um, uh, standard of civilization, right? Where it's like, oh, the U.S. is democratic and all these other countries are authoritarian. That gives us the authority to set the rules of the game internationally and decide which countries are are worthy of aid or of of being included in the world, uh, the you know, the world system. Um, I think that political scientists are sometimes a little obtuse about the power dynamics involved in, in establishing these uh, measures and using them for their research. You're right. And, you know, I think one of the, one of the things that I always found frustrating about the, the way that this conversation then shaped the the intellectual contributions that we could make as scholars of authoritarianism from the beginning back to your to your first question i suppose is that it it always struck me that the assumption on the part of foreign policy decision makers uh, was in 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 the united states and in other western countries is that citizens of authoritarian states they must all be victims like they they must all hate their they hate their government they're just like they're either brainwashed or they're hapless victims and i mean you you can't go to a number of countries that that are classified very clearly as authoritarian and not notice that some people really legitimately like them and i think this is this has always been a methodological challenge for me and something that i've i've always in, in my work sort of sought to to get to the bottom of which is how do you explain that because i don't think it's sufficient to just say that people are brainwashed um, for for lots of reasons we can also bring that back to the to the U.S. context, uh, it's it's not sufficient to just land on that. Um, and so, to to me though, the looking at policy policy discussions about authoritarianism, foreign policy discussions, the assumption always has seemed to be in in the U.S. Well, all you need to do is introduce these poor hapless people to democracy, and and they will just throw off the reins and they'll celebrate in the streets. Um, that's really not what you see when you actually go to and work in authoritarian states. Some of them, not all, some of them. Um, and so if the, 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 if the assumption is that these people 
live and experience authoritarianism in a particular way, this again is a normative story, um, then we are misunderstanding how to approach foreign policy and think about politics uh, and, and political engagements between democratic and authoritarian regimes if we all if we just assume that that people are 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 victims and so to me the i think this this practice based approach again it helps us think about the the actual activities of certain regimes that uh that that might be really problematic and others that maybe are are quite supportive of uh liberal thinking and and critical engagement in the political process as a way again to to move beyond that overly simplistic caricature of authoritarian regimes that leads to frankly bad policy mm -hmm. right um, and then it also leads to i think a kind of um, um backlash when um some of these countries that we uh, quote unquote, promote democracy and um, uh, wind up with uh, um, popular, pretty authoritarian leaders. Uh, I think the discourse then kind of takes a turn of, well, there must be something in their culture, uh, you know, that makes them support authoritarianism. And um, it then becomes like, uh, well, this those people just must not have what it takes to support democracy. Uh, it's just a, another, um, um, another turn of the uh, civilization uh, barbarism um, mentality that has uh, kind of dominated the lip, the Western liberal worldview uh, for the last couple of centuries. Really. Um, I see that happen yeah, a lot. Um, yeah. Exactly. And, and I think what's so interesting about these conversations with, within the U.S. context uh, is, is the way that that sort of narrative of othering authoritarianism and, and uncivilized barbarians, that this language was smuggled into the critiques of Trump and Trump supporters, uh, that, that immediately people who, who were supporting Trump and, and all of these um, yeah, sort of the the Trump uh, the Trump base were demonized as this kind of barbaric other. Granted, there are some real problems there. However, however, uh, it's it what that does, what that story does, is it just reinforces the civilizational narrative that we, the enlightened liberals are are morally superior we're civilizationally superior we're enlightened um and so even when you see some of these authoritarian practices coming into the u.s system they're treated as other uh and and this is a this is a product of the sort of american nationalist script but it doesn't it just just labeling it as other doesn't mean it's not authoritarian <laughs> so uh. Um, so I would like to ask, um, what does distinguish uh, an authoritarian practice? Um, we've talked about um, kind of the perils of, of trying to label uh, regimes or practices authoritarian, but um, in order to have a study of authoritarianism, you need to have some kind of uh, definition or, or conceptualization of your objective analysis. How do you think about what it how do we know what authoritarianism is when we see it mm -hmm. 
So some some colleagues, uh, Miley's Glacius in, in particular, has sort of laid out her her vision uh, of of what authoritarian how to think about authoritarian practices. Um, there, she talks some more about um, disabling voice and transparency issues, th- those sorts of questions, which are much. Um, I would say they're much more specific than I've always thought about a practice-based approach, because for me, my practice-based approach, I had been sort of thinking about a lot of these concepts before before I ever met or encountered the work of Miles. But uh, my my work has always been informed by the work of Foucault, Michel Foucault. Uh, and for him, what a practice-based method means is looking at what people do and what they say. Um, so a, a broader a broader approach to the to the question of authoritarian practices is something that involves uh, looking at yeah a, a broader set of governmental patterns and and by that again I'm sort of referencing the Foucauldian concept of government and Foucault talks about the government of the self and others and we sort of think about yeah the the ways in which you can exercise a degree of discipline uh, on yourself and on others. So I've I've sort of always framed the the authoritarian um, style as more on the end of discipline versus governing through freedom. Uh, so so to me the, those are the sort of broader um, ends of the spectrum. So you can you can governize govern through uh, through through discipline or you can govern through freedom. It's it's simplistic. It's a it's a, a, a sort of um, yeah. It, it reduces a lot of the complexity of Foucault's arguments. But for me, that's been the easiest place to start. Uh, the other the the other sort of major element I would say to understanding what. Um, what uh, distinguishes an authoritarian practice from a, a poor, perhaps more liberal practice is that it's about closure versus openness. Um, so in, in an authoritarian practice, you're closing down options and possibilities uh, rather than opening them up. That is, again, I, I think... That, that's where it gets tricky with the language of practice versus regime, right? Because authoritarian regimes can use lots of liberal practices that open up possibilities. And that's what they do very strategically, at least the benevolent authoritarian regimes that I study, they do that very strategically and they do that very well. Um, but as, as, a, as a specific practice, if you're looking at the exact tactics, building a university for students or giving people um, yeah, free healthcare, those, those are not authoritarian practices, um, even if they are conducted by an authoritarian regime. So yeah, a, an authoritarian practice then would be more about closure and discipline uh, and, and a democratic or liberal practice, I would put more on the end of um, uh, of openness and uh, and and um, yeah, just having having a broader spectrum of possibilities. Simone de Beauvoir talks about uh, this idea of an open future, and for her, she she gives that sort of definition of, of freedom as as that possibility of an open future, and and I think that's that's actually, I mean, there, there's 
have I've written a, a critique of this in, in, in a slight way, but I think that's still a good way of, of starting to think about what these practices are about. Do they preserve that possibility of an open future uh, or do they or do they close that down? I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off right and i think that um for me uh, uh i i do research on um the evolution of what i call tutelary democracy in turkey uh over the course mm-hmm. of turkey's um 20th century history and uh in tutelary democracy um, the military allows competitive elections to be held, which is, you know, a liberal democratic practice, and they allow um, um, leeway for elected leaders to govern uh, in a way that is consistent with um, being labeled as democratic in a lot of um, um regime uh, indexes that political scientists produce. But at the same time, what they do is they, in a number of ways, through a number of different practices, try to shut down debate over um, what uh, uh, what it is that um, people can say and shut down debates over what the meaning of being Turkish is. Um, and I think that that's where... Um, uh, this question of openness is really important because they try to shut down uh, the possibility of Turkish national identity evolving and changing over time. Yeah, yeah, and and I think it's it's something that you you can perceive much more clearly in some of these regimes that that are often sort of labeled as hybrid regimes. Uh, but but when but back to the issue of, of definitions. You, you, when you start to look at it, you see that all these quote unquote democratic, purely democratic institutions, they're, they're also incredibly hybrid. Uh, so we, we're, we're, we normalize these kinds of closures and disciplinary structures and authoritarian practices in plenty of contexts within a country like like the United States or or Germany, right? Where the 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 idea of um, yeah, a, t- a total institution or a prison or a military uh, a military base. Those other kinds of of political organization, they just aren't politicized in the way that that we politicize them in the case of Turkey that you described. Um, and so, yeah, this this kind of mix 
is is something that, that is often highlighted by scholars to talk about these hybrid regimes. But if, if you if you just start to focus on the practices and you trace those across different institutions, you can find a remarkable amount of similarities. Right, right. Um, and that kind of brings me to uh, um, a question about uh, a chapter that really jumped out at me as being... Uh, um, perhaps unfortunately highly relevant to things that are happening in the U.S. right now, and that is uh, Sinan Muradi's uh, chapter about the regime's conquest of universities in the aftermath of the Islamic Revolution in Iran, um, with the hostility that many on the right have shown towards universities in the U.S. Um, uh, this really, uh, and um, um, initiatives that state governments are taking to um, limit academic freedom and try to depoliticize university spaces and limit the degree to which uh, 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 conversations about foundational issues of, of national identity and national history uh, um, can be discussed in universities openly. Um, Universities provide expertise that no modern state can do without, and to some extent, their openness about debate and um, revision of of past findings uh, is very much critical to the benefits that universities provide. And you've discussed how um, many authoritarian regimes create universities as as these spaces of constrained uh, but nonetheless present uh, sort of liberalism or openness, but they are also spaces that foster deliberation and critical reflexivity and ultimately dissent, uh, which can endanger authoritarian political projects. Um, what authoritarian practices do political actors use to maintain control of universities, and how do some of these regimes that you've studied um, attempt to uh, gain the benefits of the university, of the openness of a university without allowing it to reshape society in ways that can get out of their control. Yeah, I'm glad you you picked up this chapter because I think Sanan Maradi's work is is really fantastic and the 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 effort that that he put into really recounting what for him was very personal story about uh the the assault on universities and student student opposition to the Iranian government uh, was was truly powerful and, and I, I applaud him endlessly for for his writing there and I guess it, it was also a, a chapter that I really enjoyed working together with him on because I too am a scholar of higher education and I've always yeah for, for the last years I've really focused on uh, questions of branch campuses and American universities going to 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 other countries and specifically going to authoritarian countries uh, but also yeah the, the 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 long history of exchange between um, higher education institutions so on the question of what authoritarian regimes do with um, with universities they have a huge range of tactics that they that they might use to um to develop uh, a special kind of relationship with the university one of the one of the first sort of examples i would i would give is these universities that are set up as um yeah i'll just give the the quick example of the of kazakhstan they uh, developed this new university that opened in 2010 the nazarbayev university named for for the first president um, 
Tokayev. And what they did in this case is they they set the university outside of legal codes. So where where all the other universities in the country were sort of governed by yeah, Ministry of Education and, and those sorts of regulations, this university got special status. And so what what ended up happening in this in this particular case is that this this became the sort of shining example of a of a liberal pro-Western um, elite education while diverting attention <laughs> from the, the the persisting problems within higher education writ large within within the country and so these kinds of ways of controlling movement and research and all of those other things they could go um they, they could go on as as they were before uh very much controlled by by the by the state uh whereas then the the shining example university gets lots of attention and fanfare uh and and has people there have certain freedoms but they they don't have the the um it's not representative of what's happening in the in the broader sense so in diff this this is just one example of how the the authoritarian regime has used that to sort of um bolster its supposedly democratic credentials which are false um and and you you see this with a lot of the branch campuses across um across asia frankly uh so so in the arabian peninsula in southeast asia in east asia uh there, there's a number of u.s um u.s campuses that that i've been doing research on where um yeah they just become this example of look we're we're really not so so bad we're um we're we're promoting liberal education and this then helps deflect attention from the broader systematic um, challenges of, of the authoritarian regime. So that's at the, at the broad level, I suppose. Um, but then within the institutions, even even within these supposed shining examples of, of non-authoritarian politics that at play at these universities, uh, there, there's certain, there, there's plenty of ways that um, that actors are are still subject to the um, to the illiberal system within which they are operating, uh, and and here I think it's really important to note that I mean with the case of these U.S. branch campuses, um, the the home campuses are getting a lot of money, a lot of money, uh, and even yeah the the. The faculty that go there and teach there, they're also getting very large salaries as compared to what they normally would get in the United States. Some of them feel uncomfortable about that, some not so much. <laughs> so in in this case, what you what you really see in in um the sort of internationalization of these of these big university projects is that these regimes are finding a very convenient way to recruit allies. Um, and so we all we all who study authoritarianism know that distributing patronage is an incredibly important tool uh, for for building regime legitimacy and and all sorts of other things. So what this then also does is it gets um, these authoritarian regimes uh, an opportunity to to build that sort of patronage network with elite institutions uh, and with high powered individuals uh, as as well as to sort of bolster their their credentials as being more forward looking or progressive and not so not such such um, 
yeah, difficult regimes that, that need to be shunned. So th th those are just a few ways, but I, I certainly think the, the bigger question about academic freedom that, that you raise uh, about the U.S., it, it also really, not, not only do these, these uh, special deals with authoritarian regimes, they, they, they demand our attention, first of all, um, but they also force us to look at the ways that, uh, that, that U.S. universities and other liberal institutions are practicing their own kind of authoritarianism on, on, on their campuses, or in the case of, yeah, state legislatures like uh, Alaska just cut all of the, the these, these massive cuts to the geography and environmental sciences programs um, because people in, in the Alaska legislature didn't want those uh, critical perspectives on the environment and, and geography. Uh, so so e there you you started to see that yes it's it's working in the name of democratic process um, but it's also then the function is to back to the question of authoritarianism and what defines that, closing down possibilities, closing down the debates, uh, and, and that kind of closure and disciplining of discourse uh, is, is something that, um, that, that we see plenty of at, at uh, U.S. universities as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so uh, interesting that um, you point out how uh, U.S. universities are basically recipients of of patronage from um, regimes like Saudi Arabia and and Kazakhstan, and um, we don't think of patronage uh, in political science as something that goes across borders and as something that um, certainly uh, elite institutions within you know, the advanced, quote unquote, advanced democratic countries uh, are involved in or recipients of. Um, um, but that's yeah, absolutely and, and, what it is, what's going on there. And there, there, I, I would encourage anybody who hasn't looked it up before to to check out the um, U.S. Uh, it's, it's the education website uh, from the it's the Higher Education Act of 1965 that mandated uh, Congress mandated that universities uh, receiving funding from from foreign sources report that. So if you search for this database, it's called the College Foreign Gift and Contract Report. Uh, you can see where those big dollars are coming from. Um, and, and there's just millions and millions of dollars that are flowing into the United States that, that you can start to, to sort of look through in, in this, this massive data dump. And I think what's, what's interesting about this report, actually, is also the fact that it's, it's a requirement of this of this higher education act from from 65 but it's not really enforced that universities report and so back again to the question of transparency there's a huge amount of money that is coming in that we don't know about because nobody's actually tracking it and nobody's enforcing reporting on this so there could be many 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 millions more that we simply don't know about because the universities aren't reporting it Right. Um, so um, 
Uh, I want to turn now to uh, another recurring theme in a number of chapters in the book, um, and that is, uh, and and as well in in your work is uh, the role that urban mega projects play in the hegemonic projects of authoritarian political actors. Um, how do you, uh, well, first of all, what are some examples of these mega projects that that come up in the book, and um, how do they benefit? Uh, authoritarian political actors? Like, how do they help these political actors advance their projects? And what are the risks involved for authoritarian actors in using these projects to try to achieve uh, a hegemonic leadership position in their political systems? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's quite a few great examples in the book. Um, so there's there's one chapter uh, about Bangkok, another chapter about uh, about North Macedonia, and another chapter uh, about Morocco. And I would say, uh, yeah, I would say those are the ones that are more explicitly about the the mega project. There's plenty of other chapters that sort of cover the urban politics at the at the, at the broader and the micro scale. Um, but but these and and as you mentioned, my my previous work has really focused on um, yeah larger spectacular capital city project. Uh, but even within that, you can you can think of a, a mega urban project as as being related to just um, a, a particular structure or, or um, district. So Suzanne Harris Brandt's chapter talks about the White Palace headquarters in, in Skopje. And so it's it's one particular building that she's sort of analyzing, uh, whereas Konrad Bogart's chapter, he's looking at the broader sort of mega urban development project across Morocco in lots of different cities. So just to, to start there, I would say that all of these sort of mega, <laughs> whatever that means, it's completely relative, right? Um, and I think to me, that's always as a geographer been what makes this idea so fascinating of spectacle is that spectacle is, is completely relative. So then, then I've I've sort of theorized it as as a political technology again, sort of drawing from from the work of Foucault. If spectacle and and the mega is something that is relative, then how do you harness it? How do you apply it to your particular pet project? And that's where then you can see how this works in those different chapters that certain political actors have been able to harness spectacle as a kind of political technology around a project that fits with their agenda. So the agenda of the uh, of the people in, in Skopje would be very different from the, the planners uh, who are doing this massive scheme in, in Morocco, across Morocco's territory. Uh, so so in in this way, then then the question becomes, OK, well, if it's it's a political technology that is helping them bolster their ends, um, those can be anything. Right. They can be a political agenda. They can be um a distribution of patronage. I think for me, that's been always one of the most interesting pieces of, of looking at the capital city projects I have in, in Central Asia and, and the Arabian Peninsula is uh, the, the way that these these regimes, again, because I'm, I'm most interested in benevolent authoritarian regimes, uh, how, how they very strategically are able to, to distribute that patronage through projects that 
are framed as being for the people to make us proud uh to 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 do all of these uh sorts of things that um that seem yeah aesthetically pleasing and organizing and uh just positive developments but they're they're really the the direct benefits are going toward the political allies um, and, and in this way, again, we have that sort of pattern of distributing patronage and ensuring that you have a network of elites around you who are able to support your agenda, but are also beholden to you uh, and, and in many ways fearful of dissenting because then you lose the you lose the benefits. So in, in this way, I think the, the mega project is always it's always going to be a sort of different phenomenon from any other kind of urban development scheme because it focuses the the resources the political and the 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 symbolic and the economic resources it can focus those in a way that is much harder in a more distributed sort of question um yeah yeah, and um, uh, as I was reading these, I was uh, these chapters. I was thinking a lot about how um, uh, uh, Tur- Turkey under Erdogan has been um, uh, undertaking a lot of these uh, spectacular projects, uh, and um, it's notable that a lot of the key allies of the Akpet Party uh, in in Turkey. Um, a lot of the key business allies who have stuck with Erdogan through thick and thin uh, have money in construction, contracting. Uh, uh, those are, you know, um, big parts of these business groups, and uh, they're absolutely beholden to Erdogan. If he stops winning elections, they stop getting contracts, right? Uh, or at least that's their fear, and. Uh, and so they're willing to go to bat to him for him and and do all sorts of uh, uh, you know send uh, send all sorts of money back to his party to be able to help him stay in power um, buy up media outlets and use them uh, as propaganda outlets as part of these sprawling um, um, uh, uh, business groups that they have and um uh, you know, you look at um, in a lot of countries uh, across the global south, uh, the biggest business groups are tied to construction and they're also the most politicized business groups, uh, the ones with the closest connections, the major political actors, because they depend on on government contracts to be able to uh, and, and on permits and looking the other way on regulations. Uh, um, there's no the whole state market separation is, is just purely ideological in a lot of cases. Uh, and this is also true in the U S um, and, and, and a lot of cities. Um, you're, you're right. And, and I think this is, so in, in the book, there's also a chapter from Ashikal John and she writes about um, some of the protest movements in, in Istanbul. And, and I think it's, 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 it's a great chapter and there, there's a lot of fantastic work uh, of, of scholars of authoritarianism who are looking at resistance to these regimes. But I do feel that what you just described in Turkey, it can often get short shrift for a number of reasons. And, and one of those, back to the question of, of the sort of trends within scholarship and on authoritarianism and where you actually do see um, 
scholars who are more inclined to ethnographic research methods is that they want to be standing there together with the protesters right and and the the protesters are happy for for <laughs> compatriots and comrades and in, in that the, that rep, in that opposition but it's much harder for us as researchers to to be sympathetic, <laughs> certainly, uh, of, of these bigger elite structures uh, and, and to even gain entry and to gain a perspective on exactly how these flows are, are working. But just because it's not comfortable or we can't get easy access to it doesn't mean we should we should not pay attention to it i think it's vastly important to sort of put those phenomena together uh and and yeah i think that that each each of us has our own set of skills in order to be able to to do that and that's what i had hoped in in bringing together so many colleagues from from different disciplines is to to take those those different scalar entry points uh so that you can you can see how they intersect mm -hmm. and it is uh, also interesting in in the chapter on north macedonia to see that um the uh the leaders of the party that constructed uh the white palace uh um some of them ultimately ended up in jail or or uh basically uh disgraced uh figures who um um uh lost power um as a consequence of investigations into um the the slush funds that uh uh were constructed in the course of of the construction of this building in the the national history museum uh as well um so it's interesting to see cases where um because of uh the incomplete or or the uneven nature of regime development um these authoritarian projects don't always work out and uh um it's interesting to think about why why it does in some cases and why why people are able to get away with it in some cases and not others yeah and i i think what what also makes um when you when you actually look at the the internal politics of, of some of these governments so so interesting is that again sort of counter to the, the the western caricature of authoritarian regimes you see that a lot of people who are regime insiders and even just the economic um the the, the economic feeder fish on the side that they they're they're living in a lot of fear constantly like they they're they are living in this constant set of anxieties about what their future could be um and i i mean frankly <laughs> this is where i think that putin president putin and in russia will never step down because he, he would be dead in an instant um but they 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 live in in this this state of fear that that can really get missed when you just think of them as as evil villains yes their behavior and their their activities and their corruption is morally reprehensible that's not that's not that's not a question it's more just an understanding that there is a kind of emotional experience that is keeping them bound to these activities um that 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 makes them harder to shake and and I think you're right. And in, in the example about the the the, Mas the North Macedonia case, that you can sort of see um, 
you can sort of see that space for shaking that that structure uh, and, and where the possibility might be. Um, and, and I think, frankly, um, Ashkel John's chapter on Istanbul also gets to that point as well. Um, um, the next question I want to uh, talk about since, since, uh, you know, a lot of this book is so focused on, on the urban, um, and on, um, uh, you know, political conflicts and, and over infrastructure, over housing, over, um, access to healthcare, um, what might be considered, uh, various aspects of, uh, social reproduction rather than, um, class struggle in factories or, or, um, over land, which are the traditional focuses of, of political economy research and, and democratization studies and comparative politics. Um, uh, how do authoritarian actors use control over the means of social reproduction to advance their projects and what kinds of resistance do these practices provoke? I spoke to, as a little bit of background to this question, I spoke to Jamie Allenson recently about a, a new book that he wrote, um, The Age of Counter-Revolution, and he uh, argues in that book that um, um, these struggles over um, the right to the city over um, the ability to basically uh, survive in cities are becoming ever more financialized and, and geared towards the interests of the super rich uh, are becoming hot points of, of political struggle in the way that they haven't historically been. Um, and I uh, was just interested in how some of the chapters in the, in the book speak to that trend of, of, um, uh, housing, healthcare, and um, infrastructure being both um, um, tools for, or, or or sites for uh, authoritarian practices to take place, as well as sites of resistance. Yeah, there there's some really fantastic examples of that in in the book. As uh, I think one of yeah, just just as one first example, um, the colleagues uh, from from Germany who are writing about the case of Leipzig, and uh, th there's this sort of dynamic of well, <laughs> across the world, the dynamic of growing far right movements, uh, but but certainly in Germany, and here what you see in a trend in the broader sort of deepening of of far right uh, authoritarian practices in in a place like germany is that these actors who are promoting these xenophobic um agendas are capitalizing on the, the the difficult situation life situation of a number of people and and i think that that chapter on leipzig it does a really good job of illustrating just how how difficult it is for some of the people in these poor neighborhoods uh, in in this community uh, to to just exist to to move. They they have really big mobility challenges uh, to get work to get decent pay. All of these sorts of things that are really basic questions about life and the ability to thrive. Uh, and so in in this case, we see how the far right has really capitalized on that and and tied that 
to a story of xenophobia and the foreigners um, that that then it becomes the foreigners who are moving into their neighborhood and who are lowering the value of their of their community who aren't taking care of the trash who who are are sort of dirtying the neighborhood this story then gets tied to their own sense of yeah their, their own difficulties and their own health challenges so that that's something that again we can we can see very clearly happening in in a place like the united states as well um some of the other uh chapters also the, the the last two in the book i was very happy to be able to to include them on the covid 19 situation uh because just I mean, COVID was was just starting as this book was finally coming together, and I, I was able to 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 commission these these two because I thought at that moment that it was really important to bring the story about COVID nineteen here, uh, because in 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 those two cases they talk about Singapore and then Israel, and very different responses as we've seen across the world to to COVID, but this exact question of social reproduction is a really basic question of the reproduction of life. Um, and here we we really see some some fantastic examples of how these different um, forms of authoritarian practices took shape in um, in contexts where they were able to, well, the, the the leaders were able to sort of promote a story of fear and uh, and and the the, the the biological threat then became melded with the story of like a unitary political vision. And that's, that's again where, yes, I think there's a lot of contention around what we call authoritarian in, in the context of the response to COVID. Uh, but that issue aside when a party or a government uses it to gather more power for itself um, and promotes the 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 consolidation of power at the expense of other voices silencing other voices then we really have to understand that there's something bigger than just protecting health at stake. Um, so I think in, in all of these cases, it's kind of a, a melding of those social reproduction questions with the authoritarian vision of the actors who are are involved, essentially. Um, so to wrap up our, our conversation today, um, what directions would you like to see the Spatializing Authoritarianism Research Program advance in? And uh, what research projects do you have in the pipeline? I know you have a, a new book coming out uh, with Verso what, in January, right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. I have uh, one one new book, which is called Arid Empire, uh, The Entangled Fates of Arizona and Arabia. And this this one is... Yeah, it's it's. I, I suppose that in every way, I've I've sort of connected my research to authoritarianism, uh, but but this one, I I think it's really what what brought me more to the topic of colonialism and col like with colonization because that in that that book is really I, I would say at the end of the day it's it's about the colonization of Arizona of the Southwest of the United States, um, and. Here, 
I, yeah, it, it, it sort of thinks how this works through the, the use of materials and ideas and, and people from the Middle East and then the re-exporting of a lot of that sort of desert expertise back to the Middle East. Um, but one of the frustrations I've always had with, uh, with, with pulling together different publications and I, I've organized a lot of session like conference sessions related to authoritarianism over the years is that I often ask people who are working on colonialism and settler colonialism to join they almost all will tell me well no I don't really do research on authoritarianism and and it, it it's it's just striking to me. I've I've never properly been able to recruit them. And so I I have a I have a very strong interest in in pushing this conversation, uh, in in trying to get people who are working on uh, authoritarianism and colonialism and settler colonialism to think together. Because so many of the practices, I mean just the most basic things that these that these that these colonizing regimes were doing are what we would very quickly recognize as authoritarian. Um, and and that's that's something that is just it's, it's quite striking to me. So that's something I would I would like to move forward with and and it's certainly a theme in, in my book on on arid empire. Um, and in in that way I hope to to push the conversation um, and to bridge some of those those discussions and to think about um, yeah, blurring that that uh, that disciplinary distinction or that thematic research distinction between um, colonialism and authoritarianism and, and practices of governing and governing um, uh, space and, and bodies and, and ideas. Uh, beyond that, though, I would just say in a, in a broader sense, I would just I would just love to see more scholars in, in political science and in international relations thinking together with geographers. Uh, we and geography have been talking about space and spatial politics and scale and materialities for, for well, <laughs> decades, right? This is sort of our, our existential uh, project. So I would love to see much more collaboration and cooperation between um, geographers and, and, uh, and political scientists and IR scholars working on, on exactly these questions of how do we understand authoritarianism beyond the state and how does that help us solve certain policy questions rather than sort of blunting our set of questions about them? How can it open up uh, a, a, broader, a broader perspective on possibilities uh, and and recognizing then the sort of moral geographies, uh, the normative discussions about um, authoritarianism that that they're really that they're really quite tricky and they, they demand a lot of care and uh, yeah some some serious rethinking and not just a sort of passive reproduction of of yeah the, the concept of authoritarian authoritarianism being inherently somehow distinct from democratic. Today, we spoke to Natalie Cook about the new book, Spatializing Authoritarianism, which is out now from Syracuse University Press. Keep an eye out as well for Natalie's new book, Arid Empires, which is coming out in January from Verso Press.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.